0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning. Welcome to AM. It's Wednesday the 14th of February, Valentine's Day. I'm Sabra Lane, coming to you from Nippaluna, Hobart. 260,000 people are without power in Victoria this morning as authorities grapple with restoring power following a wild afternoon of extreme storms and fires. Five firefighters are lucky to be alive after they were caught in a burnover, where flames overtook their vehicle near the Grampians in the state's west. The Country Fire Authority says they have minor injuries. A number of properties have been lost. With more, here's Oliver Gordon.
1: Not long after evacuating her home, Pomonal resident Alison Bainbridge started receiving images of her beloved town covered in a distinct orange haze.
2: I'm purposely not trying to see those pictures at this stage. I've seen some. It's a little bit difficult to watch uh, because you're not sure exactly what's happened.
1: The community organiser made the decision to leave early in the afternoon.
2: We've decided once the lightning strikes happened um, that we would evacuate, which was the uh, call from uh, Vic Emergency.
1: Not everyone made that choice.
2: Some people have decided to stay. I'm aware that we've lost some buildings in Pomonal but I'm not sure exactly whose they are at, at this stage.
1: It's thought a band of dry lightning is responsible for multiple fires that started in the north and northwest of Victoria yesterday. Firefighters battling the Pomonal fires ran into strife yesterday afternoon. Chief Fire Officer of Forest Fire Management Victoria Chris Hardman says their injuries were minor. When the wind change came through, the fire moved very rapidly
3: into Pomonal and those fire fighters were caught between the fire front and the work they were doing in protecting uh, communities. So uh, we're very grateful uh, for, for the fact that they're safe, uh, but also uh, make you remember and realise how important this work is and how risky it is.
1: The Pomonal fire is one of three major blazes causing evacuations in the state's west. Residents in the Newtown area near Ballarat and the Mount Stapleton area, also in the Grampians National Park, have been instructed to evacuate. Elsewhere in the state, major storms caused havoc, at one point cutting off power to around half a million Victorians. Chris Hardman again. We had
3: extremely strong winds, wind gusts of around 120 kilometres an hour and six high voltage uh, transmission towers were brought down by one of those uh, wind gusts. That has had really significant impacts on power supply for the Victorian uh, area. It could be, you know, a significant
2: period before power is fully restored.
1: Meanwhile, Pomonal resident Alison Bainbridge still evacuated, will wait until it's safe to return home.
2: My thoughts are going to those volunteers that have been injured and the people that have been impacted uh, severely. I mean, we're impacted in that we can't be at home, we can't do this, we don't know what's happened at our house. But um, at this stage, uh, other people have lost more. So just think about those at the moment.
0: Pomona resident Alison Bainbridge ending Oliver Gordon's report and we've asked AEMO, the Australian energy market operator which manages the national power grid, for an interview this morning. It's declined. Authorities are particularly worried about a fire front around the town of Lake Billfield near, near the Grampians in the state's west. Here's Victoria's country fire chief, Jason Heffernan.
4: It's now at some 2,100 hectares and as uh, we know this morning, we do know there is has been property loss, uh, both homes and, and outbuildings and today's job is to, to go in there and survey the damage uh, to get those total numbers. It is still an emergency warning to, uh, not uh, to, to shelter now, uh, it's too late to leave and that's largely uh, driven for a fire situation but also from a very dangerous tree situation.
0: The last Liberal government in Australia looks set to call an early election today. Tasmania's Premier Jeremy Rockliff says he'll visit the state's governor this afternoon An election's not due until May next year. Mr Rockliffe wants to go early because he says there's unnecessary instability. He's running a minority government because two former Liberal MPs defected to the crossbench of Parliament nearly nine months ago and they're now not guaranteeing confidence. Alexandra Humphreys has been keeping an eye on developments.
5: Well, Sabra, Tasmania's Premier Jeremy Rockcliffe will later today visit the governor and ask for an election to be called, and that election would be more than a year early. Now, this comes just about nine months after his government was plunged into minority when two Liberal backbenchers, John Tucker and Lara Alexander, quit the party and moved to the crossbench. Now, they had promised the government confidence and supply, but the situation in Parliament has really been deteriorating over the past few months, even to the point now where the government isn't confident that it can control the numbers. So after trying and failing to get those two independents to agree to a strict new agreement, a meeting of the parliamentary Liberal Party yesterday unanimously agreed that a general election is needed to restore stability. Now, it is possible that the Governor will ask the Premier to test his numbers in the Parliament first, but the more likely outcome today is that an election will be called and it will be called for March 23rd. What issues are likely to dominate the campaign? Well, the two former Liberals who left the party did so over concerns about the AFL stadium that's planned to be built at Hobart's waterfront, and that's one issue that's certainly going to loom large during this campaign. And as is often the case, Tasmania's health system will be a focus. Uh, A parliamentary inquiry has recently been uncovering some quite shocking allegations about ambulance ramping and hospital management. And you'll remember the last Tasmanian state election campaign was back in 2021 when the then Premier, Peter Gutwin, was still enjoying pretty high popularity after his management of the COVID pandemic. uh, And the economy at the time was going pretty well. But this time, the state's economy is starting to falter in some areas. The cost of living is really biting Tasmanians who have seen mortgages and rents rise pretty sharply. And in this state, uh, people continue to have some of the lowest incomes in the nation.
0: And just quickly, the two independents, their main problem with the AFL stadium is the cost of it, which is feeding into that argument about budgets and cost of living crisis.
5: Absolutely, Sabra, that's right.
0: Premier Rockcliffe wants this election to deal with issues around governing in minority, but is the outcome after the vote likely to actually change that?
5: Well... So, I read this election is going to be particularly difficult to predict, and that's because Tasmania's lower house is set to be expanded from 25 to 35 seats at this election. So that means there'll be 10 new MPs who will be elected to seats where there isn't an incumbent, and the new system is likely to make it slightly easier for independents and third-party candidates to get elected. Australia's last Liberal government will be fighting a difficult battle to hold on to power. It would need to win an historic fourth term in office, but the Labor opposition was derailed by candidate infighting and pre-selection issues during the last election campaign, and they've only just come out of national administration. So, Sabra, that might mean an interesting term ahead for whoever comes out on top.
0: Alexandra Humphreys there. Up to 200 million people will head to the polls in Indonesia today with voters choosing a new president to replace Joko Widodo after a decade in power. Past elections have been marred by deadly street violence but this time the mood in Jakarta is relatively calm as a record number of first-time voters cast their ballots. Our Indonesia correspondent Bill Bertels is there.
4: In central Jakarta election workers are setting up polling booths for the world's largest single-day election. While there are many more voters in India and the US, in Indonesia they get it all done in one morning, with the polls closing after lunch. To accommodate up to 205 million eligible voters, they're setting up 800,000 polling booths across the archipelago. First-time voter Akira Chikalayanto is among the huge cohort of voters under 30 who will largely determine the winner.
5: Voting for the first time makes me very excited. When I was little, I followed my parents to the voting booth, watched them vote, and then I dipped my finger in the ink after they voted. But now, finally, for the first time, I can do the voting myself.
4: The last time Indonesia had a presidential election, the loser refused to accept the results, called his supporters to the streets, and six people died in the violence. This time it's comparatively calmer, despite some protests by student groups. It's mainly calm because that loser, Prabowo Subianto, is now the front runner to win.
0: America! America!
4: The man who beat him in the past two elections, President Joko Widodo, has now joined forces with Prabowo. His 36-year-old son, who only has two years of experience as a mayor of a small city, is Prabowo's pick for vice president. Some voters say it reeks of nepotism and dynasty politics. Activists in recent days have released a documentary alleging a huge amount of dirty money is sloshing through the election system this year, particularly for Mr Subianto's campaign. Dandy Loxono is the director.
6: Our normal ethical
4: standards have been broken. The conflict of interest between people in government and candidates shouldn't be normal. but Because it happens every day, it becomes a new normal. My purpose is to show the public just how little credibility this election has. Whether the last-minute efforts of activists to slow Prabowo Subianto's march to the presidential palace work will be known by Wednesday evening, when a quick count should show whether he's won an outright majority. If so, he can avoid going to a runoff poll later in the year. This is Bill Bertles in Jakarta reporting for AM.
0: Indian police have fired tear gas and detained farmers who are marching to New Delhi to demand the government pay more for their crops. Authorities have blocked multiple entry points to the capital, banned large gatherings and suspended internet services in neighbouring states. But the farmers remain undeterred, as South Asia correspondent Meghna Bali reports.
7: In northern India, thousands of police officers and security personnel have been deployed. They're doing everything they can to stop farmers from marching into New Delhi once again including firing tear gas and blocking entry points into the capital with barricades, cement blocks, barbed wire and road spikes. But union president Manjeet Singh Rai says the farmers are determined to have their voice heard. The current situation is our youngsters have removed a layer of barricades that the police put in place to stop us from crossing the border. We'll remove the rest as well. The government fears a repeat of 2020, where dozens died in a year-long protest that ended only after ministers agreed to repeal controversial farming laws. Now, two years later, Protest leader Sarvan Singh Pandhir says some of their key demands haven't been met.
6: We want a law that will ensure our crops won't be sold under the minimum support price calculated by the government.
7: Currently, the government buys certain crops at a promised minimum price, giving farmers a safety net in an industry where the value of produce can fall drastically. But there's no law that makes this mandatory, which means the government and private traders don't have to follow it. Farmers are also pressing the government to waive loans and increase pensions. But negotiations between the government and protest leaders reached a deadlock on Monday night. The farmers march towards Delhi on tractors and trolleys. The farmers say they're filled with supplies like food, water and gas cylinders for six months.
8: The protests will go on for however long the government wants it to go for.
7: The march comes just months before a national election in which Prime Minister Narendra Modi is expected to win a third term. But these protests could pose a serious challenge, with farmers considered one of the most influential voting blocs in the country. This is Meghna Bali in New Delhi reporting for AM.
0: Ukraine's running out of money and ammunition as a $90 billion aid package remains stuck in the United States Congress. The US Senate's approved the package, but its fate in the Republican-controlled House of Representatives is uncertain. However, could a creative solution to the nation's ammunition shortage be on the horizon? G7 nations are examining a proposal that could see about $645 billion worth of frozen Russian assets given to Ukraine to fund its defence. Here's Europe correspondent Steve Kinneit.
6: Bill Browder has been described as the number one enemy of Russian President Vladimir Putin. The hedge fund manager turned human rights activist has for over a decade pushed Western governments to bring in Magnitsky Acts, laws that punish Putin's cronies and other human rights abusers through travel bans and economic sanctions. Now he's lobbying world leaders to bring in laws which would seize Russian cash and bonds kept in the West and send the proceeds to Ukraine. There's a real
3: problem right now in Ukraine, which is that they're running out of money, running out of ammunition. Many more Ukrainians are dying on the front line, and they need more money to defend themselves. Now, there is one solution, which is a very elegant solution to this problem, which is that about a week after the war started, uh, central banks in the West froze uh, somewhere between 300 and 350 billion dollars of Russian central bank reserves. This is Russian state money that was held in the West. And as we've seen, this war has caused a lot more than $350 billion worth of damage to Ukraine. And so the elegant solution is for the West to confiscate that money and contribute it to the defence of Ukraine.
6: A large proportion of this money is in Europe. And there is nervousness in some countries on the continent that this idea could impact financial stability and lead to legal action from Russia. Kremlin spokesperson Dmitry Peskov has said that if any of Russia's sovereign assets are seized, it will be challenged in the courts. Mr Browder has told AM that laws can be changed. So a law of countermeasures prevails over any sovereign immunity of assets.
3: And by the way, the rules-based international order says countries that do terrible things should pay reparations. The only difference between this proposal and what's happened in the past is the reparations always happen at the end of the war. But there won't be an end of the war in our favour, in Ukraine's favour, unless they can defend themselves. And that's why this needs to be done before the end of the war.
6: Doug Bondo is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank based in the US. While he has some sympathy for the idea, he's told AM he's concerned it could have unintended consequences for Western nations. Well, imagine if countries
4: decided that, uh, you know, they should do something about assets of countries that unlawfully invaded Iraq and ended up promoting a sectarian conflict there that cost hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties, one could argue that those countries should lose, that that money should be taken and given, presumably, to the Iraqis. And one could imagine them coming after the United States, United Kingdom, and perhaps even Australia.
0: That's Doug Bondo, Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, ending Steve Kinane's report. Should Australia ban foreigners from buying property in the residential market to help Australians get a leg up in buying their first home? Two federal independent MPs are putting forward that idea. They think a two-year ban might help. It's similar to a scheme operating in Canada. But some economists and industry experts warn it could have unforeseen consequences. Here's political reporter Tom Lowry.
8: It's a familiar feeling for many first home buyers, turning up at an auction, scanning the large crowd, and realizing you might have plenty of competition in bidding for your dream home. Some federal independent MPs want to thin that crowd out a little. Here's the member for Colire, Andrew G. Why shouldn't
3: Australians have first shot? at buying that property rather than foreign investors.
8: He and the member for Mayo, Rebecca Sharkey, have brought a bill to parliament that would ban foreign buyers from the Australian residential property market for two years. The market would be limited to citizens and permanent residents. It's adopted from a similar policy in Canada, which started out as a two-year ban, but has now been extended to four. Andrew Gee says a two-year pause is enough time to see what effect
3: the policy has. We're not turning our backs on the world, but what we are doing is prioritising the interests of Australians, particularly first home buyers, over the interests of foreign residential property speculators.
8: Foreign buyers are not a huge slice of the Australian property market, with around 4,000 sales in the year to June 2022. That's in a market that has averaged around half a million sales a year for the past few years. And foreign buyers are already largely restricted to buying new homes and apartments. Andrew G says it's still enough homes to make a difference.
3: It's not necessarily a huge number, but it is a significant number and it can make a difference to thousands and thousands of Australians. That's precisely the wrong way to go around this. Foreign investors are crucial to, to actually increasing the supply of housing in Australia.
8: Tom Devitt is a senior economist with the Housing Industry Association. He worries pushing out foreign buyers will cut off an important source of investment into new high-density housing.
3: They're crucial um, investors, especially in the apartment sector. And going forward, the apartment sector and the high-density units and townhouse sector really need to do more of the heavy lifting.
8: Others downplay the influence of foreign buyers, but still argue it's the wrong direction to be turning in tackling housing affordability. Here's independent economist Nikki Hutley.
5: Our affordability crisis is one much more of supply rather than demand.
8: And she warns there could be unintended consequences, like sending the wrong message to skilled migrants who might be looking at Australian jobs.
5: We certainly don't want to fail to attract foreign uh, workers who've got particular skills that, that we so desperately need because we say, you can't own a house.
0: That's independent economist Nikki Hutley ending Tom Lowry's report. And that is AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane.
5: Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Since footage emerged of Barnaby Joyce lying flat on his back, swearing into his phone on a Canberra street, there's been fierce debate over whether it matters or not that an elected politician could be caught out in such a manner. Today, Radio National Breakfast and the Party Room podcast host Patricia Carvelis unpacks the culture of booze at Parliament House. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app.